As children, we're faced with many circumstances that are difficult to change. For instance, where we live, who our parents are, and what school we go to. There are also those things that happen to us as kids that seem outside our control, like being bullied, or that teacher that seemed to have it out for you. And then there are the things that also seem like they can't be changed, like a person's physical capacity or your ability to give a presentation in front of a group of people. For example, I recall being the super skinny kid who could eat and eat and not gain an ounce. I know you might say you wish that was how you grew up, but it came with its own share of challenges, like getting picked on because people thought I was weak, or being afraid to join a sports team because I was awkward and had little control over my body. When I did get the nerve to join a team, it was track and field. I ran the 100 and 200 meter hurdles. I wasn't horrible at it, but I don't think I ever placed. One of my most vivid memories involves the time when I joined the cross-country ski team in middle school. I recall a competition at Squaw Valley, I think, in which I trailed in last place. Like, I was so far behind that it was quite certain that all the other kids would be back in their street clothes sipping hot chocolate by the time I crossed the finish line. Or so I thought. I felt so ashamed that I decided to cheat and somehow managed to cut a third of the course from my race. And I still took last place. The other kids weren't quite into their hot chocolate yet, but I was mortified. I'm fairly certain I ended my cross-country skiing career then and there. Looking back on my experiences, they seem like such small things, especially considering the significant suffering so many people go through. But I remember, as a kid, these were gargantuan struggles. I was constantly acutely aware of my weaknesses, as well as how I compared to other kids who always seemed stronger and more capable than me. And these experiences could have set the tone for how I lived the rest of my life. Who knows, part of the reason I became a personal trainer could have been due to my need to prove to the world and myself that I can be athletic. I also know that, to this day, I still feel like that weak, skinny kid who hesitates to do anything athletic in front of anyone. I know, poor me. If you happen to catch my very first episode, you might recall that I spoke with Anique McGack, who talked about how we sometimes bring things from our youth into our adulthood for better or for worse. Today's episode takes that theme a bit deeper as we ask the question, do these things we went through as kids define us, or is it possible for us to change the script? Do these experiences create roadblocks or building blocks? And can we really, as Timon advises a young Simba in The Lion King, put our behind in our past? Today I talked to Brooklyn Heights-based author and personal trainer Sean Zetlin, who also faced his share of physical challenges as a kid. Like me, fitness and athletics didn't come naturally to him. We'll talk about those struggles and what he did to overcome them. He'll explain how his love of acting formed the foundation and would later become an integral part of his successful career. You'll hear stories from the field. The life of a personal trainer can be quite an interesting one. He'll explain his inspiration for writing an entire book on push-ups and why everybody should be doing them. Also, I feel I'd be remiss to interview someone from New York and not discuss the theater scene. He'll talk about one of his favorite Broadway shows, I may have dropped a little spoiler, and the inspiring message he takes from it. And he might have something to share on this little show about a certain founding father you may have heard of. This is the Book Builders on Books and Authors, and I'm Ryan Halverson. During this times of, um, uh, I guess, like first grade and second and third grade, you know, I kind of found out early on that I just didn't have the, you know, the makeup that other kids had had where, you know, it came to being able to catch a ball or throw a ball correctly. And I think for me, the hardest part was, you know, as a kid, you know, facing some bullying, of course, and, and low self-esteem. This is Sean. 
growing up, I had club feet. I had horrible motor skills. I had, uh, I was not an athlete by any sort of means. And I wanted to be, and I had to work hard to be physically fit. And I, I sort of had these physical disadvantages of other kids. So it was a goal of mine sort of as the underdog, like to channel my inner Rocky and channel my inner athlete to be good at this stuff. Of course, my parents were sympathetic, but it, it was really coming from myself of going to my father, uh, who at the time never forced me to work out and, and, and never forced me to be an athlete, and saying to him, I need help. Like, I really want, this is something I really want to be good at, and I really would like you to help me with it. Fortunately for Sean, his dad just so happened to be a professional bodybuilder. Um, and I sort of transformed myself, not only physically, but also mentally, because the I think the mental part for me was having that confidence you know, I was, you know, a little little chubby kid, but nothing nothing terribly big. But I think for me, I didn't have the confidence because of my body. And then as I had gotten the hypertrophy and the muscle growth, that, of course, helped my confidence. But then to be able to have these attributes of being able to throw a ball and catch a ball and then sort of become equal to my peers, that really helped the confidence for me. Um, so I was, I felt like a bit, big disadvantage. But now as I look back, the journey in itself is just it's quite exciting, and I'm, and I say this humbly, but I'm very proud of myself because it could have gone a whole other direction. And so I talk about a lot with my practice here in New York to my clients that fitness is therapy. Whether you're anxious or stressed or having a bad day for whatever, for whatever reason, that you know, even on your worst day, fitness can save all of us. And, and I really feel, I don't mean to be dramatically, of course, to say this, but fitness I really feel has saved me that way, has given me more confidence and and more ability to for me to reach my fullest potential. As his confidence grew, he decided to challenge himself in new ways. Inspired by his friends, he decided to audition for an upcoming musical. This was in high school. Much to his surprise, Sean landed the lead role of Levi in Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dream Code, and he was hooked. Or, as they say in the biz, he caught the acting bug. This experience would alter his life's course. While he continued to maintain an interest in fitness, he now felt an immense aspiration to become an actor. And so Sean decided he would follow in the footsteps of many before him and move to the city that never sleeps to pursue his dreams. But there was a caveat. My parents were both educators, and, and even though they both are artists in their own right, were sort of strict on school, and rightfully so. So um, the dream of me being an actor, wanting to be an actor, sort of had to be put off until I finished college in 2002. And then I moved to New York in 2003. I started auditioning, and it's a super challenging world, if you can imagine. And uh, and I'm like, well, can I really make money doing this? And, and thankfully, my brother was here, and he was in law school, and he needed a roommate. And I happened to be showing a friend of ours some just basic stuff at the gym, just things that my dad had taught me. And he's like, well, you're really good at this. You're really patient, and you're motivating, and you're kind. He's like, I think maybe you might want to do this also. And it really sort of inspired me to think about that. So I was still auditioning at the time and in 2003 for shows, and I was fortunate enough to be in an independent movie and had the lead in that. And I did certain things that, you know, were, weren't, weren't, you know, were, were definitely exciting. But I was really at the same time kind of branching off from the auditioning and really getting further into training. Sean says that this is something he never anticipated doing. However, the impromptu training session and the feedback he received from it opened his eyes to a brand new career path. Shortly after that, I sort of put acting on hold. I mean, I still want auditions here and there, but I really focused on fitness. And uh, this was sort of one of those big box gyms, uh, 
if you will, and uh, and they required a certification, of course. And so the first thing I did was get educated. And I say this to the young fitness professionals that I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be around these days, and I tell them, get educated as much as you can. So from there, I, I picked up as many certifications as I could at the time. And uh, and from there, I found even more love of fitness that, wow, like the body's fascinating, and this is pretty amazing. And I just got into everything, you know, if it was pre-postnatal uh, pre- uh, or if it was uh, corrective exercise or, you know, dare I say the word functional training because it's just a term thrown around these days. But whatever it was, I was super into it. And I, I couldn't wait to just to have that creativity to train somebody and help somebody. So I was um, at a big box gym for, I'd say, uh, a little bit more than maybe seven years or so. And then from there, I branched out and been running my own business since in the New York metro area, and it's been fantastic. I mean, I wear many hats these days, uh, but I love it. It's clear that you're now a successful, established, and confident trainer. But like all professions, it takes a lot of time to get to this point. And naturally, the beginning of a personal trainer's career must begin with that first client. And I know this all too well. That can be a challenging and maybe even awkward experience. Do you remember your first client? I do. Really yes. do. Uh, yes. Uh, Anything that you, you know, can share about that experience? Yeah, uh, I think like most trainers, you know, if I, if you could go back and tell yourself to just slow down and take a deep breath, and you know, you're going to be fine. Um, I was, I was absolutely nervous, and um, I will give her a different name uh, just for confidential reasons, but uh, let's call her Rebecca. And uh, she was you know, mid-40s and looking to lose weight and just sort of standard stuff, thankfully no injuries, and that was really good and so sort of an, an easier client to work with, given the no injuries, but she was very sweet, she was very nice, I was very upfront and told her, you know, you're my first client that I'm, I'm training, but I'm, I'm absolutely super educated and and I'm going to go slower than, than, than maybe I should and better safe than sorry approach and... Uh, and she was awfully sweet with me. She was, she was, it was a really good experience. And then, you know, experience, I think, is the number one thing that I always tell young trainers to, to keep, you know, in their back pocket because you can't have enough of it. And even if you're a senior trainer like myself, you can never stop learning as well. So, um, but going back to it, yeah, it was, a, it, was a very, it was a very pleasant experience for my first time for sure. Inevitably, at some point, every personal trainer has to come across someone who poses uh, some sort of significant challenge. Do you recall anyone in your long history that was like that for you? Well, you know, when, when you're doing it as long as I have for almost 14 years now, you're going to bound to meet somebody who challenges you more than others. Um, fortunately, I'm proud to say that the exclusive clientele I have now, I've, I've trained for a while and and I'm, I'm in love with all of them. and They're fantastic. But when you're first starting out, I mean, you're you need the experience, and especially if you're in a big box facility, you know, they sort of feed you clients. And uh, there was one particular woman who I remember uh, who was very demanding in the sense that she had brought in all these pictures of these different celebrities, and she had cut out pictures of different parts of their bodies. So, for instance, it was like Jennifer Aniston's arms or Angela Jolie's bust or J-Lo's, you know, um, glutes. And so she had, she basically demanded to look like, you know, basically take a morph of these celebrities and demanded it to be done basically in a month or four weeks. Okay. So 
I can imagine somebody bringing in a magazine picture of a celebrity to their hairstylist, but like this is some Frankenstein type stuff. What did you tell her? I expressed to her that you know we would we would definitely try our best to get her to look like that aesthetically, but you know there's certainly no promises and four weeks is not enough time. And of course, you know what is she doing when she's not with me? And you know where is the nutrition and and the water and the sleep and the cardiovascular work and all that other stuff? But she was pretty demanding and and and, uh, and harsh. And there are certain clients I think in this industry that either I always say there's there's two different clients in this industry that we're in. There's the first client who just gives you energy. The energy is super positive. The vibes are fantastic, and you feel like you could train them all day. And there are certain other clients that you you may also like, but they're sort of energy vampires, and they they take your energy. Uh, and sometimes it's negative. And so this particular client was more negative than I would probably prefer to work with. And so after our short four weeks, I mean, I, I feel like we did do some great work and we definitely progressed in a lot of ways but I think for me afterwards it was sort of that she's better off working with somebody else so that's probably my most difficult experience to date all right one last client centric question any funny training stories Yes, there's one that I think is really funny, um, and I, I hope it's appropriate. So I'll, I will I'll be as as PC. Uh, it would sort of be don't worry about it. You just you just tell your story. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, <clears throat> so there was this one particular gentleman that I trained. I feel that I should warn you in that this story recognizes the existence of certain bodily functions. We had a, <clears throat> a very nice time together. Uh, again, he had moved away, and uh, and and. Anyway, I don't, I'm not in contact with him anymore, but um, he would come into the training sessions and he always would have a grapefruit juice with him. Uh, it would be grapefruit juice. Sometimes he'd have maybe like a something other exotic juice, like pineapple juice, like an, uh, an untypical juice, if you will. And during our session, he would have some flatulence and, uh, and some would be louder than others. And it didn't matter if we were necessarily doing core work or, or what the actual exercise was, but he would he would fart repeatedly. And sometimes um, they were louder than I was, like I mentioned. And I had to think of the most saddest things because I didn't want to I didn't want to laugh because I didn't want to embarrass him because I could already tell he was embarrassed. But he would drink these juices while we would work out. And of course, as you know, with the drawing in maneuver, or if you're really engaging your core in certain ways, you know that's gonna possibly create some gas, but he would have gas repeatedly throughout the workout. And there was one particular incident where he was very loud and he would, we were basically doing this plank variation and he was, you know, clenching his glutes and he was drawing in his, his, his navel to his spine as much as he could. And I think I had his forearms on the foam roller at the time. And he just let out the largest fart you could possibly imagine. And everyone around us were just, you know, the, this was when I was at the a big box facility at the time, and everybody started cracking up. And again, Ryan, I had to think of the most saddest thing I possibly could because I didn't want to laugh because, again, I didn't want to embarrass the poor guy. So, and, and so towards the end of the session, we wrap up, and, and you know, we're, we're chatting privately, and he goes, I just want to apologize for today. I said, no, it happens. It's fine. He goes, well, you handled it really professionally. I said, no, of course. I said, don't be embarrassed. Hey, it's, just, it's part of life, you know. He said, well, he said, I, I – I, I think people were laughing. I said, well, if they were, I'm sure they were laughing with you, not at you. But, you know, if we if we need to change our time and you want to be in the gym area, you know, with during different people, we could try for that. But 
Anyway, this would be sort of a repeated circumstance where he would literally buy 10 sessions at a time, and every session there would be some sort of uh, uh, of gas situation or gas scenario. So anyway, I sort of steered it as, well, maybe we might want to switch to water. I don't know if this, the juice is causing you some flatulence or what we need to do. But anyway, that that to me I think is the most is the most hilarious story I can think of offhand. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. So you wrote a book called Push-Up Progression, A 24 Push-Up Journey to Stabilization, Strength, and Power, and now is in its second edition. What inspired you to write an entire book on push-ups? It started with me seeing incorrect push-up form at the gym. Uh, I think we'd agree that most people who are not under the guidance of a fitness professional have improper form, and the push-up or even the squat, there's other exercises, of course, we can go on and on, but the push-up particularly is such a universal, iconic exercise, and I would see so many people with incorrect form, whether they were flaring their arms out more than 90 degrees or if their hips were sagging or, you know, conversely, if their hips were too high, and it just sort of inspired me uh, to sort of write down like and jot down some tips to help people uh perform push-ups more easily. And then from there, I started doing more research on push-ups because for me, uh, in my background and my fitness journey, I wanted to inspire others to feel strong. I think that when we think about the push-up, we think about strength, we think about Rocky, you know, we think about uh, uh, power. And uh, for me, it was, uh, I want to inspire people to feel better about themselves. It's an exercise you can do wherever you are. It's convenient. Uh, but it's an exercise that people are doing with incorrect form that could possibly lead to injury down the way. And then through my research and my own training and my own certifications and education, I realized, you know, the push-up is just much more than an aesthetic exercise. Uh, you know, it, it's incredible for posture. Like, you know, you're creating, you know, we're creating the scapular traction. We're creating uh, more transverse autonomous stability and and lumbar stability and so forth. And, and you're engaging your glutes and you're working your – you can work your glutes and – to get your lower half involved, when people think about push-ups, they don't think about their glutes. They don't think about the glutes being a, a muscle that could help them uh, perform the push-up more easily. So I started my research with this pamphlet, if you will, which was like sort of the first edition. It was about 80 pages, and I was centered around the core because, again, I would see people perform the push-up, which is not incorrect in the sense that they have their feet about shorter width apart, but I thought to myself, they're really cheating themselves on those deep core stabilization muscles. Again, the transverse abdominis, those internal obliques, and so forth. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I should write this progression pattern because I would see guys and even females as well progress in the most absurd ways. I don't mean to judge, but you know, it would be you know upside down dosu holding a stability ball with one leg up, and it was almost like a dangerous progression. I would see, and I thought, you know, maybe people are just unaware of how to progress. And so it inspired me to write this again, 80-page uh, first edition on how to progress with you know, proper form and having it very much correlated, but having the upper body and lower body together. And then from there, the success was was really well received where I was fortunate enough to be picked up on the Discovery Channel and different other publications and, and different websites. And I was just really floored and still incredibly honored by the whole experience. And then that inspired me to write a second edition. And the second edition I'm super proud of because that dive deeper into the whole stabilization, strength, and power phase. And what I like to talk about is 
briefly is if one doesn't have proper stabilization, one cannot create proper strength. And if you don't have proper strength, then you have really no business creating power. Uh, and so that's sort of the pyramid, stabilization, strength, and power that I like to preach. Uh, and then I also made it a mental journey as well about, you know, not knowing you can do something, you know, you know, not doubting yourself, just but really truly believing that you can take this journey. And even, if you, even if you can only do one push-up, you know, take the mental journey as well because you will be able to do more than one. Uh, and so I'm super proud of it, and I'm hoping that it just if I can inspire one person, which it certainly seems that I've been able to, it, again, it's been all been worth it. You bring up something that I noticed, or I guess maybe I should say didn't notice while reading your book, and that's a discussion of aesthetics. Was that a conscious choice? That's uh, very astute of you, and I really appreciate you bringing that point up. Um, yeah, so... We all we all have images of what we want to look like physically. There's no doubt about that. And we, we live in a world where everything's so instant, and you know we all have an idea of how we. I don't want to classify say all, but most of us, I should say, have an idea of what we want our body to look like. But when I was writing this book, again, given my past of you know uh, the you know the club feet and of course uh, the gross motor skill issues, I didn't want to and put pressure on people to look a certain way. Like, if you do this push-up, you're going to have a bigger chest. Or if you do this push-up, you're going to have, you know, stronger arms. And I, you know, I didn't want to I didn't want to throw that point home to people or push that point home to people. I wanted it to be, again, a, a mental, spiritual journey of getting fit, of getting healthy. And I do talk about in the book about how we age and how, you know, the muscle that we lose, just if you don't move, if you don't exercise or or how good exercise makes you feel, you know, whether, again, if, I know I said this earlier, but if you're an anxious person or if you're a stressed out individual, so the power of movement, what that does for us mentally. So for me, it was that was more important than, again, saying, if you do this, you're going to have this, you're going to have your dream body, which it does come hand in hand. I mean, you know, obviously doing the, the doing the push-ups in my book, you will develop, you will develop muscle, absolutely. There's no doubt about that, if, especially if you do everything that you're supposed to do while you're not doing the push-ups, like, you know, eating correctly and, again, drinking your water and sleep and so forth. But I was more, yeah, I was more involved in making people feel better about themselves. Oh, if my math's correct, you've been in this business for, what, like 13 years. And so I assume that you have insights into why the general population struggles with weight, fitness, and food. And now this is a very big question that has multiple and probably very complicated answers. But what would you say is the biggest roadblock that prevents people from living a healthy lifestyle? I think the biggest thing that people use is they, they don't believe that they can have the body they want. I feel like they, because everything is so instant these days, and Instagram, um, um, as much as I love it as a social media practice, I think people just posting, you know, half-naked pictures of themselves, I think it discourages a lot of people, and that's not necessarily fitness. Uh, and again, I think when, when you have an overweight person or somebody who's not happy with their body and they go to the gym and they don't obtain the body that they want the next day or even a week later, they're sour on it and they just sort of give up. I think for most people, it's so easy to reach for the pizza or reach for the ice cream. Again, you had a tough day. Who wants to go to the gym? You had a tough day. Who wants to work out, right? I mean, I, I think that's how most people hate to say it. Think it's easier to, to eat emotionally or, eat, or or to do something that you feel that you want to reward yourself with, which is a tasty treat. And I think the hardest thing for most people is going to the gym. Again, whether you're a busy mom or you're somebody who works, you know, 15 hours a day, 
But when most people are there, I honestly believe they enjoy it. I honestly want to believe that if, if everybody could get themselves to the gym or even work out at home, and I, I, I just honestly had, had done a video on this for even just five minutes, if people could just work out for five minutes instead of choosing an unhealthy snack or, or, or treat, they would feel so much better about themselves because those are lasting effects. But I think it's so daunting for people to, to think about, oh, I don't want to go to the gym and why go anyway because I'm not going to get the body I want and so forth and I have no time and, you know, it's so cliche to say, but, I you know, I don't have, I don't have the time. I just don't. But once they're there, I feel like people really enjoy it. Endorphins kick in, the serotonin levels kick in, and you start feeling really good about yourself. I mean, nobody regrets – I don't really know. I've never heard a client of mine – or know of anybody offhand person that said to me, I shouldn't have gone to the gym today. It was just such a waste. Every one of us is an inner athlete inside of us, meaning there is at least one exercise we're all good at. And for someone listening, if they don't believe that, search in yourself, because I, I really truly believe that there's at least one exercise that someone is good at. I really believe that. Or a movement, of course. As you might expect, considering Sean's background in acting, he has picked up a robust clientele of those involved in the stage in some form or another. He trains dancers, actors, directors, and photographers. And so, as someone who used to be involved in the theater many, many moons ago, that's me, I wanted to know what his favorite show of all time is and why. And interestingly, what he says brings this whole podcast full circle. I think I'd say The Lion King, believe it or not. All right, I have to come clean. I can say that that's probably not his first choice. I'd learned prior to our interview that he had gone to see Hamilton, and I told him that he couldn't use that one as his response. So I'm guessing this is his second favorite show. Anyhow, carrying on. But maybe not for the reason your your listeners would would think, because uh, it's an, it's an incredibly uh, an amazing visual experience. Number one. Um, but the story of learning from your past. That spoke to me incredibly. Because again, you know, it's Simba who's the, the young lion cub, who's, you know, who sort of is strained, I guess you want to say, from uh, with his uncle, you know, Scar, who's the villain in the show, uh, thinking that he's the reason that his father passed away, and he sort of becomes exiled from his, his mother and his friends. And, uh, you know, he, he eventually goes back to Pride Rock to, to defend his father's honor, but learns from his past instead of continues to be hurt from it. I think for me, offhand, that was, again, it goes back to my fitness journey and, and that little kid and, and learning, and, you know, the little kid, you know, who in first, second, third grade was bullied because he wasn't good at sports or wasn't... Uh, inclined to, to have the attributes of my peers, but learning, learning, you know, don't you have to be hurt from your past? And that goes from everyone, whether, you know, you're in the fitness industry or not. The past is there to teach all of us. And then from there to, to learn and inspire us to become better versions of ourselves. Sean, I can't let you go without talking about Hamilton first. If you wouldn't mind, would you give me your 30-second Hamilton review? Okay. Um, okay, 30 seconds. Okay, uh, it's, 
an incredible emotional piece about, uh, uh, we all know who Hamilton was, or maybe we don't, but uh, the founding father who uh, had a lot to prove, again, you know, an orphan, abandoned, you know, his mother died in his arms practically, his father left him. He came from nothing, from, you know, just poverty to the United States at the time to become one of the most influential people in history. And I think it doesn't matter necessarily where you start, it matters where you end. And he stood for something, and that was that's basically the underlying message of the show, stand for something, believe in something. Aaron Burr was clearly his arch nemesis, for those who don't know, but Aaron Burr didn't stand for anything. And Jefferson, who also was his arch nemesis, stood for something, and even though Hamilton didn't agree with Jefferson on any point practically at all, he still endorsed Jefferson as president because at least he stood for something. So my underlying message of the show is stand for something, believe in something, and certainly stand up for it. And that's our show. Special thanks go to Sean Zetlin for sharing his story with us today. You can pick up a copy of his book, Push-Up Progression, a 24 push-up journey to stabilization, strength, and power at Amazon. I'd also like to thank you for taking time out of your valuable day to listen in. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast from iTunes. And if you like what you've been hearing, please do give the show a review. This has been The Book Builders on Books and Authors, and I'm Ryan Halverson. Halverson.